and welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today I'm joined by Professor Jack Williams and Susan Seabury, who along with retired bankruptcy judge Stan Bernstein, co-authored ABI's newest publication entitled Admitting Expert Valuation Evidence Before the U.S. Bankruptcy Courts. Our podcast will explore this book and its importance for bankruptcy practitioners. By way of introduction, Jack Williams is a tenured full professor at Georgia State University College of Law and the Center for Middle East Studies in Atlanta. He is also a principal in the Restructuring Disputes and Valuation Advisory Services Group with Baker Tilly Virchow Kraus LLP. Jack is a member of the Boards of Advisors of the St. John's University School of Law LLM Program in Bankruptcy and of the ABI Law Review. He is also the Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Advisors Scholar-in-Residence and served as the inaugural Robert M. Zinman ABI Scholar-in-Residence in 2001, returning to that post in 2008. In 2009, ABI presented uh, Professor Williams with its annual service award, which honors an ABI member whose contributions over the past year have been extraordinary. He is a fellow in both the American College of Bankruptcy and the Bankruptcy Policy Institute at St. John's University School of Law. Susan is a principal and forensic litigation and valuation services general counsel at Baker Tilly in Atlanta. She has over 20 years of experience in financial, forensic, and legal matters, including the preparation of financial analyses and reports on an array of bankruptcy, insolvency, and forensic issues. She has provided financial advisory services to numerous constituencies, including debtors, creditors committees, bondholders, secured creditors, and purchasers. Susan also provided services relating to expert testimony on behalf of both plaintiffs and defendants in multi-billion dollar litigation, and has served as a mediator in highly complex commercial matters and intercreditor disputes. Susan has also authored several articles and books on the role of financial experts in bankruptcy for ABI and other organizations. So welcome, Jack and Susan, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So how did this book come about? We don't really remember. <laughs> um, honestly, we... We promised uh, about three different vice presidents of publications we'd get it done that year. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure John Ames started it, but I'm not wholly sure. Um, to all of those uh, vice presidents of publications that we promised and didn't get it done, we're really sorry. <laughs> well, <laughs> we finally finished it. Well, we appreciate your perseverance, and uh, I, I read it. I think it's a great book, so I appreciate that you, you guys got it done. But who, who is your intended audience for the book? I, that, that's a great question. We, um, we wrote the book really with uh, uh, an eye focused on legal practitioners uh, in the bankruptcy area, and uh, the other eye focused on um, the uh experts and potential experts uh, in the uh, financial uh, setting, whether it's valuation or other types of financial testimony that might lead to expert opinions. But we wouldn't stop there. Um, we would go well beyond um, that intended audience to include uh, judges that might be interested in this issue, um, the various stakeholders in a bankruptcy case that might be interested uh, in the issues of valuation and financial testimony. Um, high school algebra students, it was, it, because that will uh, promote greater sales, uh, <laughs> we'd even be happy uh, to modify it somewhat uh, for, uh, for those folks. Uh, so the, the more we can sell, the, 
the better off for the ABI. Uh, <laughs> Welcome, Sam. That's right. That's right. Well, I, you know, we also do, the ABI does its um, litigation skills symposium, which partners um, lawyers and um, uh, financial experts, kind of mid-level professionals uh, in a, you know, five, four-day uh, intensive mock trial type atmosphere. And I think this would be a great book for those folks. So I'm going to encourage uh, the ABI to use it uh, as, as um, materials for that program as well. But I think that's a great idea that I, I have in the past taught in that program. Uh, and I thought, I think it's done a great job, uh, both um, historically, obviously, on the law side, but it has over the last handful of years integrated the financial uh, folks uh, into the uh, the process, and now it's uh, fully integrated in an excellent program, uh, one that I always recommend uh, to attorneys and uh, financial advisors that are interested in, uh, potentially interested in testifying in bankruptcy cases. Yeah, well, th thanks, Jack. I mean, I, I do think that this book would kind of take what they've learned there and um, provide them an even um, better base for their practice. So. Um, and even though this book is really not about valuation in bankruptcy per se, you have a really long chapter in the book that talks about valuation and valuation methods in detail, um, which I think would be helpful um, to these, you know, this group in the um, a bankruptcy litigation class. But, but you also say in the intro that bankruptcy at its core is about valuation. So can you just explain to folks what you mean and why you think valuation is so critical to bankruptcy cases and litigation? Certainly. In the bankruptcy context, um, the the question of of the value of the property of the estate uh, presents itself early on in a case when we're looking at um, the question of administrative solvency, uh, the operations of a business in Chapter 11, uh, the continued operations of the business in Chapter 11, cash flow concerns, uh, liquidity concerns, um, adequate protection concerns, post-petition financing concerns, and ultimately um, uh, the question of, of confirmation and or the alternative of the orderly liquidation or the conversion of a failed Chapter 11. At all of those stages, various valuation issues uh, present themselves. Oftentimes the stakeholders in the bankruptcy case will negotiate out an appropriate estimate of value for one given purpose or another. Uh, but occasionally, more often now than in the past, um, the stakeholders are turning to the courts to resolve key valuation issues uh, in, a, in the bankruptcy process or key valuation issues looking at, let's say, avoidance actions uh, in a bankruptcy case. For Chapter 11, uh, most uh, business Chapter 11s that uh, we're looking at on the maybe the high, the, the mid-market to to above are really cases involving the conversion of, of uh, paper that's no longer marketable to paper that is. And at its core, that requires the valuation of um, the company as a going concern, so enterprise value and the reorganizational value of the debtor, which are, in fact, two different things, uh, often become front and center uh, in a bankruptcy case. And, and for valuations to be effective, as um, our editor Robert Stark has pointed out in his forward, that opinion testimony has to be admitted. 
and so our focus of of the book um, was to help um, legal practitioners and and potential expert witnesses in identifying um, the pitfalls and challenges to uh, getting valuation testimony admitted and also recognizing that valuation is always contextual in the bankruptcy process. It's answering a legal question uh, through the use of um, opinion testimony on behalf of a, of, of a financial or valuation expert. Amy, the reality is rent large bankruptcy is always about value because in, I'd say, 99% of the cases I've ever been in, there are more claims than there are, there's too much month at the end of the money. Um, so everybody's not getting what they were promised. And in the end, bankruptcy is about who gets what from the estate, assuming there is one. You know, if you are, if you're a Chapter 7 debtor, the first question is, are there any assets at all? Uh, which is a value question. The next question is, you know, is, it, is are there enough assets to administer? You know, they're, they're, they're at every, every step along the way in a bankruptcy, whether large or small, the question is, what's it worth? And to too many unsophisticated non-bankruptcy people, they look to things like, well, the balance sheet says it's worth. We all know that, the, that what the books and records say it's worth isn't necessarily what it's worth based on depreciation rules, based on a host of other things. And so at some point, somebody's got to figure out, okay, if I'm going to distribute these assets to the creditors, I've got to figure out what they're worth. Um, sometimes that can be done consensually. Sometimes that can be done without a hearing. Sometimes you just get a, you know, an appraisal of real estate. But sometimes it's, it's a bigger fight. And when people disagree on what it's worth, then people like us come into play to apply measures that meet the Dalbert standards so that they are standard, they are tested, they are rigorous, they are repeatable, so that you can determine in a logical way what's it worth. And to some degree, it matters who you're talking about because, as someone once said in a case we were in, if you own two-thirds of the Hershey bar, one-third of the Hershey bar is worth a lot more to you than it is to a guy who doesn't own two-thirds of the Hershey bar. And things like that have to be taken into consideration. Right. You know, when I was practicing, that's I always found that interesting, that valuation is different depending on who you're talking to and what their what their end game is and it's really and and at what time in the case are you valuing things and I mean it's really it's just is it, it's a key issue I agree and it's really important and you've done a good job of laying out the different methods of valuation that are um, available and in the book and what the courts apply now you did do this in the context of three different bankruptcy issues um, uh, can you kind of outline what the, I mean Jack you rolled through a list of uh, times when valuation would be important and issues in which it would be important but what are the three that you picked, and it, was there a you know rhyme or reason behind picking those three in order to kind of make, make your point? The three that we picked to look at uh, for purposes of, of um, then applying uh, the developments in the, in the laws 
regarding Daubert and challenges to valuation were um, the question of insolvency in preference cases, um, the question of insolvency in reasonably equivalent value in fraudulent transfer cases, and then uh, cram down confirmation uh, standards, the fair and equitable standards for confirmation of a Chapter 11 plan. And the reason we selected those, uh, one, just the ubiquitous nature of the controversies happen in a lot of cases. So they were relevant for that purpose. Um, and um, uh, two, uh, two of the, uh, of the uh, scenarios are backward looking, right? Determinations of insolvency and, and insolvency and reasonably equivalent value, um, looking back one, two, three, four, five, six years. Uh, he, he could uh, theoretically even longer if the, that particular jurisdiction embraces the golden creditor rule. Um, but uh, you're undertaking valuations and financial analyses um, after the events have taken place, trying to transport yourself back at the time of the transfer and using only what information was known or reasonably knowable at that particular time to determine whether a company uh, was insolvent or not or whether a company received reasonably equivalent value in exchange for an obligation it incurred or property that it transferred. The, the third scenario, um, though, um, is forward-looking. It's the fair and equitable standard um, that's necessarily, that is necessary to be met if you have confirmation in a cram-down setting. Uh, and that uh, fair and equitable standard um, uh, requires, in many instances, a valuation of the reorganized debtor. Um, and that valuation of the reorganized debtor is, like all valuations, forward-looking, at least all valuations in the financial context, forward-looking um, under the uh, uh, existing and new assumptions regarding the reorganized debtor. Um, and because of that, the, the ability to juxtapose the, um, the, the view of valuation looking back in time versus the view of valuation in the traditional sense looking forward at a time where you're actually predicting the future as opposed to predicting the past was a fascinating pedagogical tool, uh, pedagogical tool uh, to, uh, uh, to highlight some of the the issues that we had um, identified in applying Daubert to valuation testimony. One of the things that we've noticed over time is that when you're doing the test, particularly for fraudulent conveyances, you know, preferences is, is more of a short time frame to the bankruptcy. But when you're looking at fraudulent conveyances and you're talking about something that happened two years ago, it's, you know, it, it, sometimes it's hard to put aside what actually happened as opposed and, and instead look at what you thought was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a key element that we, we wanted to emphasize and one of the reasons we chose fraudulent conveyance insolvency is because it is important to not use hindsight because as we all know, hindsight is 2020. Okay. Yogi Berra, who's, who's my favorite bankruptcy philosopher, um, <laughs> Once said, it's it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. 
Um, and it's also true that it's hard to make predictions, especially about the past. Uh, and we're making those predictions uh, about past events um, without recognizing that that's what the law requires us to do when it transports us back in time so that we can make a determination of what is known or reasonably foreseeable, um, even though we know uh, how ultimately, because we're, we're there and we're human beings, how ultimately the, the drama is going to play out. The company is in bankruptcy and probably suffering severe financial distress in the bankruptcy case. Um, you know, and it's very difficult not to let that color um, the analysis, uh, but you work really hard uh, to make sure that is not the case um, uh, because of the requirements of the law and our own financial literature uh, that requires us only to consider the, the information that was known or reasonably knowable at the time of the transfer. Right, and, and of course, you know, in bankruptcy cases, unlike in you know solvent corporation cases, you you have an issue of records being missing and uh, not everything together, and you know you, you're because you're looking backwards, um, and 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 you may have you know management gone and not know where anything is. Um, so when you're applying the Dalbert standards to uh, evaluation, an expert valuation opinion. Um, number one, back up and uh, just remind us what that standard looks at and, you know, what the judges and courts are looking at. And what are some of the the, the big issues that bankruptcy uh, attorneys run into when they're trying to get the evidence into, into court? Um, sure. The, um, the standard is simple but not simplistic. Um, you, you articulate it uh, really, I think, this way. Um, the federal rules of evidence generally uh, is designed to get uh, relevant evidence in uh, to the trier of fact. And a subset of... Um, irrelevant or unsubstantiated evidence out. The, um, the, uh, the subset of evidence um, that Dalbert focuses on is expert testimony. And historically it was thought to mean um, scientific testimony, um, but it became fairly clear early on after Daubert in a number of, of uh, cases um, that we trace in the in the book that the Supreme Court uh, would apply the same standards to financial expert testimony. In fact, to all expert testimony, and the idea is that uh, expert testimony is not very useful. In fact, it could be confusing and downright misleading if it doesn't aid the trier of fact. Uh, and to aid the trier of fact, um, expert testimony needs to be relevant uh, and reliable. And the question of relevance is a question of fit. Does the expert testimony address uh, a fact and issue or help answer a legal question in the case? Um, if it does not, for example, if you stipulate as to the as to the insolvency of a company, and now an expert wants to testify on insolvency for purposes of answering the question whether the company is insolvent, well, that's not even going to the trier of fact. So it doesn't help the trier of fact. That's going to be excluded. Um, the uh, the second prong, though, and, and where you get a a lot of the uh, litigation 
in uh, the uh, financial area regarding the Daubert standards is in the question of reliability. And here, if you think that uh, the requirement here is that um, the uh, methods are reliable, that the methods are applied reliably to uh, the financial data, and uh, that the opinions uh, are reliable. It's a process-sensitive approach. It looks at inputs, it looks at the model, and it looks at outputs. Uh, and the question is, is, in the end, is it reliable? Um, if it's reliable, then it will help the trier of fact, even if the trier of fact rejects the ultimate opinion. If it is not reliable, then by definition, it doesn't help the trier of fact because it's simply an unreliable and therefore unsupportable uh, opinion, what uh, we would say in, in, in Latin, ipsi dixit, right? Just the, the conclusion. Uh, and, and that, the conclusion doesn't help uh, the trier fact. It's one of the interesting things that we try uh, when, we, uh, when we speak at panels or put on workshops uh, to bring to the forefront, um, and that is that you, ultimately the trier fact, and in bankruptcy that's overwhelmingly the bankruptcy judge, could reject your opinion. If there are two experts and one says it's solvent and the other says it's insolvent, or one concludes it's fair and equitable and the other concludes it's not fair and equitable or whatever, there's going to be a winner and a loser of that issue by the very nature of litigation that goes to judgment. Um, the fact that someone loses doesn't mean that they've somehow failed to meet the Daubert standard. And from an expert's perspective, the fact that your testimony is rejected doesn't mean you didn't do your job. Your client may be upset. Uh, the attorneys may not be happy. But the expert's there to help the trier of fact. Um, and if it helps the trier of fact reach a more supportable, sustainable, defensible judgment, even if it rejects your expert opinion, you've done your job as an expert in that particular case. Um, and so uh, we, we try to make that point um, throughout, the, uh, throughout the book regarding the application of, of, of Daubert to financial testimony uh, in the bankruptcy context. It's still and I think rightfully so, particularly with the, the nature of a bench trial without a jury, um, that it's the exception rather than the rule that valuation testimony is excluded under Daubert. Um, uh, the methodologies, generally speaking, uh, and the approaches are pretty well established. So um, you anticipate, unless the expert tells you why it's not the case, uh, to see an application of the income approach and the market approach. And usually, Possibly the asset approach, but not usually. Good point. And then uh, methodologies including the discounted cash flow analysis or some capitalization of earnings under the income approach. And under the market approach, you, you're typically looking to see um, whether the expert applied and maybe is testifying as to a guideline public company approach, also called a comparable company or comp co-approach, or a guideline merged and acquired um, approach, often called a comparable transaction approach. Um, and then as Susan pointed out, 
uh, occasionally uh, and in the right circumstances, the asset approach. Uh, those are well established uh, in case law and in the financial and valuation literature. Um, where the issue becomes really exciting for us um, is in the area when you apply those uh, based on subjective uh, adjustments and uh, the exercise of the discretion on the part of the expert. Um, and that's where the, um, the minefield uh, presents itself from an expert's perspective. Really one of the things that we, we try to emphasize on the, in the book, I think, is that Dalbert puts a little more of um, almost a scientific rigor to the valuation process. I think Jack and I are both old enough to know back in the day when the question, you know, you put somebody on the stand to testify as to the value of real estate, and it was somebody who was an appraiser, and they said it's worth, you know, $100, $100 and the answer was, why? Well, because I know it is. That doesn't fly anymore. You have to spell out in that report, which is required by the statute, what, what the rule, what your assumptions were, how you got there, and it has to be repeatable. So it can't be something where it's, well, I just know, um, because that can't be tested. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things Dalbert adds to the financial area is a little bit more structure. But that point is a, it's a fascinating one because uh, there's a difference between conclusory, I just know, and subjective, which means uh, based on my understanding of comparable companies or the industry um, or my own experience with these type of, of, um, of situations, uh, the following adjustments would be appropriate. Uh, sometimes you can go to um, research um, that directly supports those adjustments, that poses less of a, of a Daubert question um, as regard to um, uh, its admissibility. Um, but in many instances, valuation requires the exercise of judgment and subjectivity, and there isn't an answer in a book. Um, and there, uh, the thesis uh, drawn from a we think a number of cases that we've identified in the book is that subjective adjustments to valuation are not uh, per se inadmissible under Daubert. In fact, those subjective adjustments um, to um, the traditional methods of valuing the company on a going concern, for example, are really at the heart of um, the credibility uh, and trustworthiness of the expert who's testifying. It goes to why the expert is needed in the first place. Right. If yeah. it were simple, if it were simple, straightforward math of add, you know, it doesn't take an expert to add up all the claims and come to a total. Right. Um, so it, it, it's more than math. Mm -hmm. it, it, evaluation is more than math. There is math in it, uh, but there is it's more than simple math, and it takes somebody with experience who says, you know, I've looked at these cases, I've looked at, you know, 500 oil and gas companies, and they all did X, Y, and Z during this time period. Yes, that's subjective, but it's based on identifiable experience. 
Right. So as long as the expert has can show that he or she has that experience, then the evidence is admitted. It's just whether or not, you know, it's more credible than the person, the expert sitting across who's had maybe three times the experience or, you know, or different experience with different companies. Right. right. The, the idea here is that the expert should be able to tie the relevant experience to the relevant adjustment or exercise of judgment. Right. It can't simply be I know because I know. Right. Right. I have experience and I know, and I know because of this and that and so on and so forth. Um, and, and it really is at the heart of, of a lot of financial testimony. Most damages models include a subjective component uh, and the exercise of judgment. And uh, uh, virtually all remedies um, uh, require the exercise of of judgment um, and valuation, at least in bankruptcy, oftentimes um, comes in the context of, of a remedy um, or has a, an equitable component to it uh, because bankruptcy itself um, is, is, is in essence an, an, an equitable remedy. I mean, you file a bankruptcy petition, that constitutes under Bankruptcy Code Section 301 what? An order for relief. That is the language of, of remedy. Bankruptcy is a remedy. It's a, I guess its closest cousin would be the interpleader action, right, uh, that we, uh, we learned back in, in law school, and most of us will never file uh, <laughs> unless you do bank work um, but the, uh, but, uh, or insurance work. But most of us will ever do that interpleader action. But the interpleader action looks a lot like uh, bankruptcy. Um, and the equitable antecedents, uh, we're all uh, driven by the remedial nature of the process to address a specific grievance or concern. And I think uh, we try to place valuation in that context. Um, and throughout that context, uh, judgment and the exercise of judgment are important. Right. And, the, and the cool thing about bankruptcy is that even though cases can look the same, there's always something different about them. It's, I mean, and that's where the judgment comes into play, I think. Well, and I think that's a, a, a very valid point and a, and a very big part of, of valuation is facts matter. You can't go in and say, well, I looked at these six figure, these six things, and when you start asking the expert about the facts of the case, they can't say that didn't, facts don't matter. Because right. they do. Right. All the facts matter. Right. Why did the management project the kind of growth that they projected it? Or why didn't management know something was going to happen? Or why did what kind of, of planning did they do in the case of the unforeseen? Those kinds of facts matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up more of your time. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything else about the book? I mean, I when I read the book, I, it struck me that there are a lot of great cases uh, in the book that talk about, you know, some of these admissibility issues and the Daubert issues. Um, but are there other things you, anything else that we've missed that you want to just mention to folks, um, you know, um, to, uh, to bring to their attention? I would just say that the, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher at heart. I, that's what I love to do. And I, I tried to select the cases along with my co-authors that were great teaching cases. And I think everybody has a right to read 
cases and misinterpret them for themselves. They shouldn't rely on my interpretation of the cases or Susan's or Judge Stan's interpretation uh, of the cases. I would recommend that if this is something you do or something you're interested in, uh, pulling the cases that we've identified, because we gave a lot of thought to that, the, the selection of those cases, and read them. Because we're blessed with great bankruptcy judges, people who are very thoughtful uh, and take seriously their role uh, in a very important institution within this country. And they're oftentimes, most often, very careful and thoughtful and deliberate when they address the issues like valuation in a bankruptcy case because they, as much as anyone else, if not more, recognize the consequences of their action. There will be winners and there will be losers. And it's painful to lose in bankruptcy. And for some people, it's very, very painful and maybe not recoverable. Mm -hmm. uh, they recognize that. Uh, and these cases really reflect, uh, in many ways, some of the best of the best of the writing at least from the perspective of, of the teaching and understanding valuation and rules of admissibility and credibility and persuasiveness. A lot of the cases we picked, um, I think, show the seriousness with which the judges treat valuation questions and how knowledgeable they are. There have been cases where judges have ruled against me and um, and I've learned a lot from them, every one of them. I really have. And, um, and they do so uh, in a thoughtful, uh, you know, they just, they're, they're going to find one expert more credible, more than credible the or mm -hmm. persuasive than the other. And I think our judges do a great job of explaining that. And that, that teaches me as an expert, and it teaches me as as someone who studies the field from an academic perspective. So I, I would say looking at, um, looking at the waterfront of judges, we, we, you know, we, got the, we got the long end of the stick for sure uh, with the bankruptcy judges that, that uh, have been drawn to, um, to that particular um, profession. We're, we're very lucky and very blessed. I agree. I agree. Well, thanks to both you, uh, Jack and Susan, for all your hard work on the book and for taking the time to join us today for the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and I will let everybody know if you're interested in purchasing Admitting Expert Valuation Evidence, please visit the ABI Bookstore at abi.org slash bookstore. So thanks, Jack and Susan. Thank, thank you, Amy. From ABI Headquarters, thank you all for listening and have a great day. Thank you.